0: Hi,
3: this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In this week's podcast, we got a bit of a treat. We have extended interviews with two of the guests who recently appeared on my MK3D online show. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that usually every month I do a live show at the BFI South Bank in London. But what with one thing and another, with lockdowns and everything, that show has moved online. You can currently find the MK3D shows online at a BFI player. In our most recent show two of our guests were Henry Blake and Julian Temple and here at Kermit on Film we have longer versions of the interviews with them so in a while we're going to hear from Henry Blake who is the creator of County Lines a very powerful drama that opens in the UK this week But let's start by catching up with Julian Temple, whose new film, Croc of Gold, A Few Rounds with Shane McGowan, also opens in the UK this week. I'm a huge fan of Julian. I've spoken to him many times over the years. He's the guy behind such brilliant documentaries as Oil City Confidential and The Filth and the Fury. His new film, as I said, is about Shane McGowan, and it's every bit as riotous as you would expect. Please welcome to Kermodon Film, the great Julian Temple. Julian, how the hell are you? I haven't seen you in many a month. We were meant to be doing Glastonbury together. Everything got cancelled. We ended up doing an online version of it. How are you?
2: Well, I pretty much haven't left uh, Somerset. Uh, you know, I've been been laying low. Really, I've been able to do some work online. You know, and research and so on. Obviously, I can do. But um, yeah, I've I've mainly been out of London, down in Somerset. So. And,
3: and how have you found that? Have you have you have you been able to be creative or have you found it frustrating? I personally I've found it I, I've had enough of it now. I'd like it to finish.
2: Yeah, I feel that way now. But I've enjoyed it weirdly. You know, I mean the spring, as we were saying before, was just unbelievable to actually experience it uh, day by day, second by second and, and, and really no distraction. That was amazing. But uh feeling now this new lockdown that's coming, it's gonna to be tougher than the first time round for sure. In- yeah, you know, we we can do stuff, though. I mean, I've, I've been productive, hopefully. OK, but
3: in what way do you think it's going to be tough for Julian?
2: I just, you know, not moving around for longer. You know, I mean, I, I would like to go out and about and see different places and do different things, but, um, you know, I haven't been doing that, so I wish we could.
3: You have, however, managed to get some stuff finished, so I've just recently watched the uh, the Shane McGowan documentary, which you had been working on for quite a long time. Uh Tell us, uh, give us the background to the Shane McGowan documentary, because like all Julian Temple documentaries, it's a real collage. It's not just like a sit down and let's interview somebody. It's a full life collage. So describe the, the movie for us.
2: Uh, yeah, I think probably no one in their same right mind would would necessarily jump at doing a Shane McGowan documentary. And I wasn't sure when they asked me, I was finishing another film, which made it difficult to to start work in time to do that 60th. Concert thing that's in the film, um, but they did that, and then then I got a, a message from Johnny Depp saying he was involved in. Would I like really reconsider? And I th- thought about it because Shane is obviously a very captivating presence, you know, culturally. I think, um, and it was an opportunity to explore England and Ireland in a way that I, I hadn't done. Um, I thought I could learn a lot by doing it. Um, was one of the big big incentives, but I also knew that Johnny would kind of have my back, the road would be rocky, but there would be someone there, you know, if I lost control of the steering wheel, who could grab it kind of thing. Uh, and that, that did turn out to be true. It was not the easiest film to make, really.
3: Okay, so let, let's talk about this. So firstly, how did Johnny Depp and uh, Shane McGowan become friends? What was their relationship?
2: I think they've known each other for a very long time, you know, um, early nineties, certainly. Um, Johnny actually directed a video that we use in the film very briefly for a song called That Woman's Got Me Drinking, where he flipped it round and he played the the guy, you know, slumped over the bar and Shane was the chirpy bartender. As actually he started out, I think his ambition was to um, be a bartender and own a pub actually in the beginning. And it, it was his first kind of real job uh bartending so he did it well but yeah they knew each other from from that time i think they had jerry common as a friend in common who was part of the guild for four um that johnny knew and, and was introduced to shane that way um a long time ago
3: so during the course of the uh, of the documentary. We see a series of interviews with Shane McGowan throughout his life. Um, I mean, really, the sort of the, the proper interview filming starts around about the time of the of the punk movement when he starts being being a face. But you have uh, selected archive interviews all the way through. There is also um, an interview that is done uh, with Johnny Depp uh, uh, speaking to Shane McGowan. We see Shane McGowan uh, talking to Jerry Adams, and so there's a there's a wealth of material. And the the most obvious thing to say about it is that by the time we we're talking about the later interviews. It's quite hard work interviewing Shane because he is not in the best of health.
2: That's true. I mean, ironically, that first interview of Shane, when he became a punk was was one, you know, I did the first interview with him back then on that really fuzzy half-inch video where he's just got the, like every newly anointed punk, they cover their hair in bleach. the late seventy six, he still got the bleach on him, so it's, you can tell how early um, that was. Um, so yeah, I mean, but the interviews were the big issue. The first thing Shane said was, "I'm not going to do any interviews. You can just you know go away and make the film." <clears throat> um, so you know that was a, the, to respond to that. There was a kind of dual-pronged attack: one of combing, you know, every journalist who might have interviewed him in. 1985 at four in the morning in some bar in Finland on a tiny micro cassette, you know, whatever the quality, I was just after anything because he wasn't giving, giving us anything. Um, so we had a very intensive, you know, kind of trawl around all that and, and began to get some really great kind of unguarded, very intimate, you know, kind of secretive almost. I like that sense of the film being slightly illicit, you know, um, unguarded moments. Telling the story in a more spontaneous way than you actually get sticking someone like me now in front of a camera, you get a certain version of a person that isn 't normally very close to who they really are you know but uh, so that was one approach the other was to try and find ways of getting to talk in some way and and conversations we didn 't say interviews that was the no go word, but a conversation um, seemed like a more friendly thing uh, you know in terms of changes ram- rambling on with you know with uh, people he liked people he respected you know that that was our second line of attack and although it really worked you know it's very sc- scattergun scat- in terms of what you need to tell the story of the film you can do 12 hours with him and johnny depp and maybe get you know three minutes that actually feed into um you know compelling emotionally moving narrative um so it was a difficult process but it was you know i did get the feeling that shane was almost directing it by making it difficult you know we were painted into such a corner that we had to had to be quite inventive and um i think the interviews we were lucky a lot of people wouldn't want to be interviewed or converse with with shane including the pogues but um the people we got by, you know, kind of default, really, were were really good because they, they showed very different sides of Shane's character. You know, he's one thing with Johnny Depp, who's an old mate, you know, they're very relaxed, there's a kind of banter of equals. With Bobby Gillespie, he's kind of the almost biting his head off, you know, Mafia Don-style presence, this, this intimidating <laughs> force that he can certainly bring to things. Um, So, you know, there was a range of different types of shame that came out of these conversations that again, you probably wouldn't get if you, if you, you know, sat him in front of a camera and and tried to drag stuff out of him. So there was a sense that the more difficult he made it, the better the film potentially could be. Weirdly,
3: the film begins setting up very clearly this idea of the divided, uh, the divided soul—one foot here, one foot in in, in Ireland—and we learn of the time that he spent in Ireland. Um, and it, there's a certain, um, I think, deliberate obfuscation about whether he's living there or whether he's on holiday there or whether he's there's a kind of d- a deliberate mystification of his childhood in Ireland, which fits in with his whole mythology tell us about that yeah
2: i mean i think you know self-invention is is at the heart of many great um artists and you know songwriters and, and just presences like shane in our culture you know you need you need to create yourself to be who he is and um yeah of course there is a big um you know issue about how much time shane spent in ireland as a child um I, which I, I I enjoyed the fact that actually Bobby innocently said, when did you first come to London? And he's like, Well, You know, don't interrogate me. We hit the, you know, the tender area around the wound was was kind of <laughs> revealed in that kind of elegant way, really. But um, the, um, the thing I'd say is that, you know, summer holidays when you're young are endless, aren't they? And Shane was in Ireland every summer. Um, I think... If he'd lived in Tipperary all his life, we wouldn't have had Shane McGowan. The fact that he could imagine it from Tunbridge Wells and and build it into this incredible thing, obviously encouraged by his family and parents who were deeply Irish, you know. So he is very Irish on one level, but he's undeniably English, you know, London on another level. So, you know, that, that mix is... I don't care how long he spent in Ireland that's the the truth of who he's become you know so
3: it's said very clearly in the documentary that the Pogues couldn't have happened without London that the that the reason that their music is happening is because it's the diaspora it's not in its in its native land Do you want to say something about that
2: yeah i mean i, I think you know it's very true that I, the london irish community which was a, was a huge community is less visible now although Many, you know, Irish people are still very much part of London. Um, but in those days, you know, the, the kind of Kilburn, Camden Town, Irish community was was a huge um, presence in, in in London, but didn't have a kind of focal point, which I think is what the pubs certainly did for young London Irish. They they lit a match paper that allowed them to to really build a, a kind of momentum of feeling. You know, that their culture was worth something, was but had a voice, you know. So that's a great achievement of any band, I think, to, to do that, give a voice to their community. And Shane did that and uh, in an amazing way. Uh, you know, I, I think you wouldn't have known when I was filming him in those punk clubs, you wouldn't have, you didn't really know that he was Irish, other than his, his name, you know, it was, it was a very London street punk presence that every street punk adopted, Joe Strummer, you know, whoever you are, that, that was part of the, the game. But you would never have predicted that he would become this this major Irish cultural, musical, literary figure. Um, so I think his London Irishness is at the core of the film and, and that brings also into play the, the, the history of those two countries, which you know, I feel certainly in England, kids are not taught very clearly about what went down between England and Ireland, and Shane has a very uh, you know, clear viewpoint on that. And I enjoyed the process of learning about that and learning from him and people that I met in Ireland, in Tipperary, where he, where he spent a lot of time. So hopefully the film is, is about a wider idea of Shane within this bigger culture and the Irish independence movement as a whole you know
3: there's a moment towards the end of the film in which he's he he says that one of the things he'd want to do is to start prolifically songwriting again and it reminds us that there was a period in which he did prolifically songwrite, and he wrote extraordinary poetry i mean it it was he he uses the analogy of picking songs out of the air there's a lovely moment when he talks about what if i didn't grab it it would have gone on to paul simon there was a moment when he was like an instrument tuned And the songs and the poetry did indeed pour out of him. What do you think was the thing that enabled that to happen? Because we have the life up until, you know, the punk movement. That's when he starts being filmed. But there was this, you know, light bulb moment when suddenly he started producing a wealth of material. In a fairly short period of time, he produced an extraordinary songbook.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was when he realised that taking the jump of, of, you know, leaving straightforward kind of punk rock and roll behind and diving into the Irish tradition was not just possible but also uh, possibly risky, but also incredibly creative act. I mean, he, you know, I think we do show that his father and his mother had had really, you know, brought the Irish tradition very much into the into the family you know, the environment, not just the music, but the books. You know, he was incredibly well-read in terms of Irish literature, whether it was Joyce or Behan or Flann O'Brien, where the first song, Streams of Whiskey, is is a scene from uh, the Poor Mouth, you know, Flann O'Brien book. So I, th- I think he, um, he did see in the early 80s, there were people fooling around with other world musical ideas. Um, you know, there was a jazz revival, but there was also world music, there was Malcolm McLaren, you know, doing Buffalo Appalachian music and hip hop. And so there were all these ethnic experiments being played out and he, he was saying it to himself, I think, you know, I've got my own ethnic music that I could turbocharge charge and, and, you know, do a sim- similar thing with. Obviously linked to who he sees himself as, is this incredibly Irish, Soul, You know, I think he's very, very committed to being Irish.
1: To make great music, a good musician has to put music before everything. And that's what I've always done.
2: God looked down on this little cottage in Ireland and said, that little boy there, he's the little boy that I'm going to use to save Irish music.
1: She went to London when we were 13. I love the drink, the, day, the, day. Let me go down. the
3: Lyrics are always about fighting, drinking, dying, living.
1: You know, the things that everybody does. Now, cursed, soar, you know, where we were the hottest live band in London.
2: Shane McGowan, the visionary, one of the finest writers of the century.
1: Then they went on a world tour.
0: It was nice to
1: excitement, And then things went wrong. Horribly yeah. wrong.
2: He went away. You up?
1: And he didn't come back. Not the shame that I ever knew. And then doctors told me that he had six months to live.
0: If I really wanted to die, I'd be dead already. Well I'm delighted to announce the special lifetime achievement award to, to Shane
2: Legal. The they songs Your songs broadened our sense of ourselves. Redemption, sorrow, the ordinary person's story. You
1: were, you were pretty clean
0: up, New York. are
3: content with what you've achieved? No, I wanted
2: two more. The
0: boys of the Envoy, Coil, we're singing going and the bells are out for Christmas
1: Day. Actually, we're better when we're sober. But it's not as much fun, so we kept trying.
3: Like everybody else at that time, I remember buying Rom, um, Sodomy and the Lash." I remember reading a Julie Birchill review of it that had a phrase in it which I, which has stuck with me ever since. And I, she said, um, she said the Pogues really are exceptionally good. But if I tried to describe their music, you'd only think of Dexy's Midnight Runners. And I don't want to be responsible for hanging that albatross around anybody's neck. Now, I love Dexy's Midnight Runners, but that was enough to make me go out and buy that album. And I played it to death. I remember playing it over and over again. Do you remember when you first became aware of Shane McGowan as a powerful musical force? Well, I
2: directed the Come On Eileen video, so I knew all about Dexy's... And, um, I know you did. So uh, in a in a way, that Irish thing was in the, in the air, you know, because Kevin Rowland was doing it um, and having huge hits with it. But the thing about the Pogues thing was there was a... There was a punky element to it that the Dexys didn't quite have, you know. Um, there was uh, just a sense of wringing the neck of Irish music and, like, sh- sewing it back together with a huge you know, Frankenstein kind of needle and sending a volts through the, the animated, reanimated body, you know, there was just something. Uh, streams of Whiskey was the thing I think I was first aware of. Um, and then I did see a gig in a pub in King's Cross just by accident and the, yeah, just the atmosphere and the sense that this music was connecting with, the Irish London Irish kids, you know, was was overwhelmingly uplifting because punk had died, you know, and there was that kind of sense that it just all about the dressing up box again, you know, going back in putting on funny costumes without much mm, thought behind it, and and the Pogues seemed to reconnect to that urgency of punk and the social communal um, roots of punk you know uh, so you, yeah it was like a second wind almost of punk and then in another cultural uh wave you know
3: now, inevitably, there's discussion of um, Tale of New York, which became, you know, I think is now regarded by by many as, you know, the greatest ever Christmas record, although I know that's not necessarily how it was originally envisaged. There is a moment in it in which, you know, Shane McGowan says, I just don't, I just, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that. And there is a sense of it being, because it, it actually not unlike Dexie's Come and Eileen, it's probably the thing that's the least interesting to them. But... It is that is the thing that put the put the flagpole around the world, isn't it? Because it is one of one of the most one of the best known Christmas songs of all time.
2: I think it's also a great Christmas present every year for Shane, you know as well.
3: Yeah, I bet. <laughs> that's what Noddy Holder always said. Somebody said, "Do you ever get sick of hearing that?" And he said, "No, I hear it in the supermarket, and I think that's the mortgage paid."
2: Yeah, well, I'm, there's a bit of that, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's such an overwhelming. Presence now at Christmas, isn't it? That song I can see. There's a bit of a fear in Shane's I mean, most people know Shane McGowan because of that song. If you say Shane McGowan, not every you know younger people probably don't know him. But you say that song, everyone knows that song. You know, it's, it's it's a funny thing that happens to artists. The Kinks are the same in a different way, but you know, everyone knows those wonderful songs, but they don't know really any more about the guys who who made them. You know. So I think there is that sense of that song is overwhelmed a lot of, you know, other great songs possibly. And hopefully the film, you know, exposes some of those songs um, to a new audience in a way that they can really dig them, you know. Uh,
3: now, among the other voices that we hear from, we hear from, you know, Shane McGowan's parents and we hear from his sister. And his sister, in, in my opinion, is the strongest voice in the documentary because she's very clear and very... She's unafraid to say the thing that I think other people are unafraid to say, which is that the alcohol in the end came between him and and them and creativity. Can you tell us about interviewing her and what that was like? Because it seems to me that she is talking in a way that is profoundly honest yeah. and must have been quite difficult.
2: I think it was. I mean, I think there's a lot of love in, in what she's saying for Shane. Um, you know, clearly it was a very close um, sibling relationship between those two growing up and she worked with the Pogues when they first took off and was on stage with them and, you know, they they have been very, very close throughout it all, I think. Whether that's still the case, I don't know. She does feel she needs to say her viewpoint of it and and that wasn't necessarily the easiest thing for her. but without that, the film wouldn't have an anchor. You you would be in this kind of sea of self invention and, and myth that is wrapped around Shane, and um, that is the elephant in the room. You see him sitting in a in a wheelchair um, with the you know whatever the immediate causes of that the the abuse of the alcohol and the drug thing has really fed into that, and and you know you can't make a film. About Shane McGowan, without you know talking about the fallout from that kind of um, way of living, you know, and she has a quite a moving take on it. I think, you know, again, you know, the rock and roll managers and how many gigs can we screw out of this band a year, and they all start you know start fighting who's got the publishing. I mean, those are similar stories that you find in Doctor Feelgood or the Sex Pistols or you know the Rolling Stones, um, but um shane's i mean there is a vulnerability in Shane, I think that she points out that that this very caustic very hard edged um aggressive at times character is is a really sensitive being inside there, and that the songs are testament to that you know that he's 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 not just this intimidating you know um kind of cantankerous. Person, there's there's anger, but it's largely himself, I think, in some ways. So, without her, the film wouldn't wouldn't work. That's for sure. I don't think.
3: I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about that, and there is there is discussion in the documentary about, you know, we need to get beyond the discussion about alcoholism, but. Watching the film, which I mean, as you always do with your movies, one of the things that you're you are particularly brilliant at is that you evoke the atmosphere of something. You use collages, you use uh, you know clips from films. You're, you 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 place stuff within a within a cultural reference point, which I think very few other filmmakers are doing. I think it is absolutely your style. And after spending uh, however long the documentary is, a couple of hours in the company of that documentary, I almost felt hungover because of the the level of alcohol consumption that goes on in the film, not just during the interviews but also through the film clips. But I also came out of it not thinking that the film for me had in any way glamorized that in fact, thinking that if you wanted to show somebody you know alcohol needs to be treated with respect, show them that film because it's it doesn't you never you didn't seem to me to succumb to the myth of the great drunk. What you did was you portray it, and you portray it in a way that's quite headachy. But there is a toll, and the toll is right there in front of you. Shane McGowan looks older than his father.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite shocking when you first see him in the in the interview with with Johnny Depp um, that he is. You know, he's a, there's a tragedy. Um, you know, you're about to see a tragedy as well as a triumph, but the two are very entwined in this story. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things that having nothing really to work with made me do was look at, normally when you do an interview with two people, a conversation, you know, you use the bits where they're talking. But because I had very little, I was starting to look at the bits where Shane was listening to Johnny Depp. And I could see these amazing... Um, emotions playing there or, you know, it's almost, it's partly that old, they used to call it the Kuleshev effect. You know, a Russian filmmaker said if you put a face next to a bowl of soup, he'd look hungry. If you put him next to a gun, he'd look scared. <laughs> but you could, you could read into all this stuff that normally you just throw on the cutting room floor, or used to in the old days when you had scissors. Um, you know, you just disregard all that reaction shot stuff. But because I didn't have, um, you know, really at that point, only near the very end of the film did we get any, any kind of clear interviews which would help tell the story from Shane, I, I, I found myself thinking he could be listening to his own story, which would kind of amplify that effect of it being slightly cautionary tale because you hear his bravado words from the past and you see him reacting and at times, you know, being entranced by that at times being angry you know made repulsed by it in, in a way or, or um, you know not happy about it anyway and that became a you know an interesting thing to do to use that material in, in a different way than just throwing it away you know.
3: And that, and that that was to something to, to do with literally putting a tape recorder in front of him and playing him his own words so he was listening to his own former... Is that... Because that's how it looks like it's happening. That's literally-
2: no, no. no I, it's just the outcuts of him listening to Johnny Depp that I found moments that I believed I could... Imagine him listening to some of the words that he was saying
3: i thought i actually th- I thought he was i mean i I actually thought that what you were yeah, doing was I playing him, pl- playing him his own interviews because it's that, that 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 actually works very well
2: well, I should probably not have given the, the game away but...
3: <laughs> in terms of the the rest of the pogues you said you know obviously there, there was a great falling out and it it seems to have happened as a result of touring are they are they now reconciled uh, at all because when you look back on when you look back on the work that they created together there must be enough of a bond there to to overcome whatever differences they may have had
2: um you'd hope so wouldn't you yeah i'm 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 sure there is a deep bond there but um you know you know rivalries in the bands are what make them great in the first place aren't they and and the old chestnut of who's writing the songs is why the band, the rest of the band want a to tour. The guy writing the songs doesn't feel the need so much. I mean, it's an age old story. Um, and that's the way it split this band up as well. But um, yeah, I'm sure there's great affection. I'm sure it comes in waves. I, I, you know, I, you'd have to ask them. They didn't want to be part of the...
3: Did, the did you approach them?
2: Yeah, we did. But in the end, I'm happy because, you know, the thing I really dislike is being, these films being called rockumentaries because, to me, that's wrinkly old rock stars leaning on a mixing desk showing their <laughs> album covers. and It's just a, some kind of weird record company PR um, excuse. Um, you know, this is a film about a, an individual, but about the world that created that guy, the time he came from, the things that fed into his music and why the audience loved his music, it's not really a story of a rock and roll band, you know um, so I'm happy actually that we did, I'm happy with the weird group of interviewees who did actually <laughs> agree to to be part of it
3: Julian, you know? um, I think, you know, as always you've pulled up off a remarkable coup which is, I mean, when you first told me you were doing this I thought, I don't know how you're going to do it, I, you know how is it going to work, but I think that, you know, with your usual kind of inventiveness, you have created a very, very thorough, rigorous, immensely watchable portrait of a very difficult but clearly brilliant artist. And I, I, you know, I commend you for it. There is a moment in the documentary in which I think Shane McGowan says, well, if it all goes wrong, we can all blame Julian. And uh, I thought it was very brave of you to leave that in.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Um I mean I have to say it was a difficult film. There were times, you know, we were waiting for days in Tipperary for the snow leopard to, you know, trigger the come and trigger the cameras. Um <laughs> you know, with with a big crew well, you know, with a crew, big for me anyway, like yes. ten people or something, um, in the wilds of Tipperary and, and you know, we would get on the phone and say, Is he coming? Is he is he and they're saying, uh, nope, he hasn't got in the car, sorry, and the next day. And then the third day was, yes, he's in the car, he's on his way. And the car made it to the nearest town, about five miles away, and the nearest pub in the town. And he was like, I'm not, you know, that's it, I'm not, forget it, I'm just staying here um, and not filming. So uh, there were times where I, I did feel um, pressurised, because you are taking, you know, you, you have people's money, you've got to deliver a film, so... It was only when I realized I'd been painted into such a corner that I had to like, bust out of it that I, I started getting you know, interesting ideas of how to put it together in a slightly different way than it would have been if you had the easier, you know, conventional interview route.
3: You've made documentaries about some very complicated people. You've, you know, you've dealt with the Kinks, who, as we all know, come with an awful lot of uh, uh, internecine baggage. You've dealt with the Pistols over a, you know, a a lengthy period. You've, uh, you know, Joe Strummer. Was was this the most difficult project? Uh,
2: Some of the others have had their moments, but I think consistently (laughs) difficult. On average, you know, like. I would say it has to be really, but you know, having said that i have I have this sense that um maybe bizarrely Shane was coordinating you know pushing the difficulty levels up and down a bit to to create a kind of chaotic um, pressurized uh, environment that that guided the film in the way it was going i he, he may be capable of that, I think.
3: There's, um, there's a moment in it in which he's talking about Elvis Costello, who, of course, famously produced, and then I presume to some extent fell out with him because he's very rude about Costello, about, you know, he stopped drinking, therefore he got fat. It does seem that his primary method of de- of describing anybody is to attack first and then maybe retract later. Did you find that was the case?
2: Yeah, he certainly did to me. I, I was a Brit bastard through most of the shoot, you know, um... I think it's that seizing the territory, it, you know, it's kind of a gorno um strategy, isn't it? You just grab it, <laughs> just like the terror space is yours, you know, up front, and then the the other guy's got to kind of somehow get off the floor, you know, so I can knock out, you know, before the the bell rings, you know. <laughs>
3: So look, now Now it's all done. And I, as I said, when, you, I, when I knew before that you were doing it, I really did doubt whether it was a project that could ever get done. So congratulations. What are you doing now?
2: Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've spent the time researching various projects that look like they might uh, happen. Uh, I'm working on my Kinks uh, movie idea with Jeremy Thomas, which is, as ever, <laughs> in the works. Um, but it's got some traction, actually. You know, all these kind of music, drama, biopics have created perhaps a, an opening for the Kinks. Um, and of and, course it's uh, never been
3: done, has it? There's never been a Kinks biopic as such.
2: No, and the story of the two brothers is is extraordinary and fascinating and incredible. Um, and the fact that Kinks are less known, you know, everyone knows the Stone story and the Beatles story. But the Kinks, the, the kind of dark horse of those four big, english bands in the 60s and um i really want to tell that story i have my christopher marlowe uh story that it's got a lot of new life now i'm working on a tv series a six-part tv series about marlowe uh i am involved in a, a tv series about la through the music which is fascinating um you know people tend to think of la in terms of movies but it is really one of the great Centres of music in the world and has been since the New Orleans guys, the jazz players went there in the late teens, early twenties to entertain the movie stars on set. You know, when the movie stars were acting, they'd have people like King Oliver and uh, Jelly Roll Morton on on the soundstage playing while they were they were acting. <clears throat> uh, so from that very you know amazing beginning, through oh, you know to West Coast jazz through. Do walk through the great rock and roll, the beach, you know, surf the rock and roll, the hip hop, the you know, the music is is endless in LA. And to see the city, one of the strangest cities. You, I mean, you couldn't really write it, could you? The, the story of LA shouldn't exist. But anyway, to see that city through the the prism of of the music is is fantastic. I think um, very. I've got a Dennis Hopper project as well, so well, you know, maybe one of, one of these things
3: might just happen. <laughs> Julian, I, I, listen, it's a sort of final question. I mean, I've known you for many years. I'm a huge fan of your uh, of your films, and uh, and I personally we get we get on well as well, which is which is nice. You are drawn to people who are difficult, who are on the brink of being off the rails. Um, who you know, you are drawn to. To conflicted people and yet in all my experience of you you are the least conflicted most you know easygoing well-natured chap do you think that the documentaries are doing inside the- there's a roiling sea. yeah exactly that's what I'm asking you
2: I think there probably is you know I think I could, could have gone different ways um I mean i ha- you know i have i have been obsessed with film, but I've also been drawn towards uh, rock and roll should we say you know so i've i uh, i could have gone in different directions at certain points you know and um I find difficult people are usually difficult for very interesting reasons you know um you know there is definitely a, a vulnerability to be found in an aggressive character it, it seems to me. Um, I love trying to understand creativity because it's what makes me tick. I mean, if I was, <clears throat> if I couldn't have it, I I, 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 you know, I wouldn't be here, really. So to explore that in other people is a way of exploring it in yourself. I mean, a lot of these films are, I mean, they're not biographical, but they're about the time I've lived through. So they are, you know, ways of me trying to, to kind of make sense of the world I've. Passed through, you know, I am still passing through, you know. So, um, yeah, I'd like to kind of join them all together somehow and do like a, you know, a hundred hour screening in the end of all these, all these pieces.
3: Okay. And so, last thing if somebody was going to make a film about you,
2: yeah, would well, you? These Mexican a- guys are threatening to do that. And,
3: oh, really? Uh, What's I- happening? I don't know about this. <laughs>
2: I uh, had some guys in Mexico <clears throat> keep saying they've got the money and do I want to do it? And I say I'm too busy at the moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. What was that?
3: My thanks to the great Julian Temple. Croc of Gold, A Few Rounds with Shane McGowan, opens in the UK this week, as does County Lines, the very powerful new feature from writer-director Henry Blake. Henry Blake also came on the most recent MK3D show, and I think the film is very important. So here is a longer version of that interview with Henry Blake about County Lines. So, Henry, let's begin by, I mean, the most obvious question. Tell me about the background to the story, because it's a really powerful film, very, very harrowing, and it ends with a statement that what you've seen is a very small part of a very large problem. So tell me about the background to it.
1: Well, alongside my development as a filmmaker for the last 11 years, I've also been a youth worker in London and have worked all over in many, many boroughs um, for various charities, um, working with very vulnerable children and children often who are excluded from mainstream school and they can end up in um, other educational settings like a PRU, a PRU, um, and also doing some one-to-one mentoring and trying to sort of guide that child along with the family back into um, a sort of healthier state of living, if you like. Mm. And uh, in 2015, a friend of mine called me and said, listen, I'm at a PRU in uh, East London, and I'm working with two groups and it's, it's quite heavy. And would you like to come along and, and help me and support me? And I said, yeah, of course. And that was a very unique commission in that the commission of that work was, was, was a year. You know, and so I really got to know those children in that setting. And one of the groups in particular, mostly made up of boys who were 13, 14 to about 17, were being heavily exploited and traumatized by county lines. And I, as a youth worker up until that point, had dealt with many, many heavy topics, you know, in terms of extreme poverty, um, neglect, physical, sexual abuse. But I had never come across trafficking and modern day slavery and and the nature of this style of crime and i think the light bulb moment for me was when a 15 year old boy that we were working with went missing for three weeks and he was from plasto and he came back into area and i asked him i said where have you been and he said i've been in aberdeen in scotland and i sort of went um, sorry, what? <laughs> Did you go Might on holiday there?
0: Aberdeen,
1: yeah. Why have you been in Aberdeen? And sort of cue then this unraveling of what County Lines was, but also handling the trauma of these children and seeing how distressed they were, seeing how vulnerable they were. And they weren't necessarily, if you were to meet them, um, they don't present vulnerable, Vulnerable straight away. It's very complex because there's a lot of defiance. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of um, angst and um, So one of the one of the major things for me during that year was going People are perceiving these children to be very difficult and to be a problem but actually What is happening to them is deeply traumatic and these children are victims and they're being trafficked um, and I'd never brought my filmmaking on a direct collision course, if you like, with my youth work. I was too scared. I was developing short films with my wife, Victoria, who produced the film. Um, and I, I wanted to keep them very separate. But that year, an instinct arose in me that sort of said, you know, you've got to do this. Um,
3: Just for those who don't know, just to be absolutely clear about this, explain what County Lines means.
1: County Lines is a drug distribution network, Class A drug distribution network that is highly profitable and that essentially uses vulnerable children and traffics them in order to transport and promote the lines. And the lines are mobile phone lines that um, drug users can uh, ring or get in touch with or the, um, the dealers can get in touch with the users and promote the selling of those class A drugs. And children are used as a mechanism, as promotion, and as uh, transport. And Henry, why children? Because it removes all major risk from the upstream perpetrators. It's, It's a kind of perverse way of keeping at arm's length if you are a perpetrator and avoiding... All styles of detection, um, security force detection.
3: Okay, so essentially, what you're doing is you are preying upon the most vulnerable people because they have the least chance of anything coming back to you. And there is uh, a, a an encompassing interview in the drama, which begins with this explanation of what's effectively collateral damage. And uh, our central character is told; we hear them being told at the beginning you are basically collateral damage. Um, yes. Tell me about that, uh, because that's a very powerful sort of uh, book ending of the film.
1: It's something that within the safeguarding community, it's a messaging that you're trying to give to a child who might be contemplating or might be starting to get exploited within county lines. And often with a the child, there might be deeper emotional, psychological domestic, socioeconomic needs that the grooming process is fulfilling. And it's our job as safeguarding professionals to say, whilst that process might feel like you are being rewarded, like you are being gifted, actually what is happening to you is you are being slowly positioned as, as a human shield, essentially, which if things go wrong, you are the first, uh, you are the first object in a long line of very traumatic and very violent episodes that can occur within a county lines narrative, if you like.
3: So crucially, what we see during the course of the drama, I don't think this is a plot spoiler because I, you know, I think it's, it's perfectly fine to talk about the arc of the film. What we see is a character who at the beginning of the film is hesitant and doesn't seem to know what their identity is. And they are then offered by somebody who seems to be a mentor a possibility of an identity he tells mm-hmm. them you know that's what being a man is mm-hmm. what being a man is is dealing with pain and providing and at the same time he's trying to he's asked by this older uh, guy you know about being the man of the house he says I am the man of the house and he is basically offered an opportunity to become what he thinks is an identity but what actually happens is completely the opposite that he becomes literally just a, a pawn in somebody else's game. And I think that when I think about the film, that's what it looks like. To me, that's the central thing. It's about somebody being offered an identity when in fact what's happening is that, that their identity is being taken away from them. Is that fair?
1: I think it is fair, yeah. Yeah, I think it is fair. I think it's a very fair summary. I think I would go one step further and say, uh, yes, they are being offered an identity but actually through the process, whatever shred of identity that they had is pulverized to near annihilation. And that when you're a youth worker and you work with children like Tyler, what you see is the trauma, is the depth of trauma that when they come back from, say, a County Lines episode, it's very, very clear. And it was very clear to me that these children are, uh, are victims of extreme violence, and how are we, as a community, I guess, supporting those children in order to recover from that style of exploitation, modern-day slavery, and uh, you know, punishment, if you like. Yo, bring your chips, man. Oh, allow I what? just bought shut up, son. What are you doing? Huh? Just back. Oh, I was only joking with him, man. You right. Yeah. I used to work for some older guy when I was your age. Running errands, things like that. I had to be the man of the house. Help my mama out.
2: Bye kids. Bye.
1: I'm the man of my house. Talk to me T, what's up? How are things at home? That's what being a man's about. Dealing with
3: stress.
1: <laughs> and you deal with stress. We've got crack cocaine, heroin, we've got everything there, so you need to send it places quick. Do
2: you have any idea what he have to do to get that money?
3: The risks that are involved? Tony, you got to wake up.
1: You need to stop lying. Where do you go? Somebody needs to look after this fan.
2: businesses have what they call an acceptable loss you know what acceptable loss for your business is
3: you now tell me about casting the drama because obviously in order for this story to work you have to completely believe in the characters and there are there are some very very tough scenes i mean you've just referred to that you know there are You know examples of extreme violence. There is one particular scene in the film which I found almost impossible to watch. Um, So tell me about casting it. How did you find your core cast?
1: Well, Aisha Bywaters, the fantastic casting director, um, I'd always wanted to work with her and she came on. And we developed a very clear philosophy when casting the film, which was we needed authenticity, but we also at the same time needed a sort of Subtle emotional depth with everyone, Um, and it was a pretty standard approach to casting. I wanted to work with actors. I didn't want to use children who have been or who are exploited. I I I feel from an ethical point of view that wasn't what I wanted to explore. That was
3: something. So it was very. What's interesting is so that was something you considered and then thought, no. What I need is professional actors.
1: I, I considered it for yep. a second, but then I I, I I said no. You know, we can't because of the, the depth of the trauma that these children experience. Yep. Um, so it was a very standardised casting process, but Aisha really led that from the front, and she she was you know uh, she was very very thorough in looking for someone like Tyler, and whittled it down from about three hundred tapes to then about twenty five to then we saw about fifteen boys in the room. And Conrad Khan walked in and, you know, it was a, my other producer was in the room, David David Broder was in the room with me. And, and as soon as he walked in, you know, it was very clear that there was a certain quality that he were, he had that I felt very attracted to uh, and I wanted to work with. And then he did a reading of, of the scene um, where he is, physically violent towards his mother. And I wanted the young actors to do that scene because I wanted, I wanted to get a gauge of what, how they understood sort of emotional warfare, if you like, because that scene is a war and that family is at war in that moment. And he simply did the best reading. One of the best readings I think I've ever seen in terms of casting and kind of put me in a position which every actor wants to do where you can't say no. To him, <laughs> you know, he also has
3: a, a great vulnerability. I mean, particularly in early scenes, but then we see it toward the, the, later on in the film as well. That even when in the midst of these uh, horrific scenarios he does, I mean, he, it's not just that he looks young, it's that he has a vulnerability to his face. Mm. His face has a boyish quality that when he gets aggressive can change, but mm. it's a kind of mercurial quality. Tell me about, you know, you said that you, you knew that it was him, is that partly to do with that quality?
1: Absolutely, and it was, it was a sort of beautiful marriage because for me, the essence of the film from a writing point of view was about exploitation and near annihilation of vulnerability. So the pursuit for Aisha and I was to find an actor who inhabited that quality in the most innate way. And he was that. The challenge then was, can he do the flip side of that coin? Can he deliver the traumatic, violent, uh, hostile young man? And when, he, when, we, when I sort of stress tested him, if you like, um, he delivered that time and time again. So, I mean, his greatest gift as an actor for me is is that he listens. He's a wonderful listener. So we got very far, very quickly, you know, on the budget that we had and on the limitations that we had, I didn't have 14, 15 takes. I had four. So, I had to work. I, had, I needed an actor who could respond very quickly to very clear notes, and was aware of the social responsibility. And he's a wonderful listener, and listens with his whole instrument, which um, I, I think is a is a great gift.
3: You said earlier on that you had some misgivings about bringing these two elements of your life together. Um, I think the film's worked really well, um, and I think it it has brought those two things together. But during the course of the film, were you thinking of yourself as a filmmaker or as somebody with uh, with a social agenda, a story to tell? What was what was the thing that was in your mind the most?
1: Uh, a filmmaker. You know, I think I got very good at. Partitioning those two skill sets. So when I was making films, I was very—it was very clear in my mind what I was doing. And then when I work with young people, it's a—it's a different hat, you know. So, um, and were they ever
3: in—were they ever in conflict, Henry?
1: Yes, of course. So in the writing process, because you have to make editorial changes, and sometimes those changes might work for the story, but you know, as a youth worker, that there might be a sort of it might be a bit of a disruption, if you like, to to a broader context. But it's it was very clear in my mind that I was making this for the general public, and I think a great example of awareness around this is. We f- we screened the film at Cambridge Film Festival last year and in the Q&A afterwards 50% of the audience were made up of social workers, youth workers, teachers and 50% were general public and in the Q&A the so- safeguarding community put their hand up and they said we have been dealing with this for years and we have seen it increasingly get worse and escalate and then the other 50% put their hand up and said we had no idea and I think that it's very, it was very clear to me that I didn't want to make a film that could be shared internally within the safeguarding community. I wanted to make it for the general public.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, my own experience of it, Henry, I knew nothing about the film other than title before I watched it. Okay. And, uh, and so I felt that there was two things happening. One of them was that I was watching it as a film critic, thinking this is really well put together. I really like the way in which it's... Contr-. And the other part of me was thinking, I don't know this story. So I think it is achieving that. Um, But I think it is a really interesting balance, particularly with your own history, in telling a story that is an important story that you have an investment in and a knowledge of, and then telling it as a filmmaker who is also creating something. Because one of the things about the film is it's not just a slice of straightforward kitchen sink social realism. The way in which the story is told is actually expressionist. And it's Mm. it's an inventively done film with a marriage of sound and vision that's, You know that is cinematic in its Mm. in itself, and I so I'm fascinated by the kind of the way in which it's possible to do those two things in harmony.
1: Well, I think it's all in your approach, isn't it? I mean, for me, language when when you're working with your frequent collaborators and heads of department, language is very, very important. So in the approach, I said to everyone, look, I don't want to make a movie about this. I want to, in essence create a sort of deeply cinematic visual document of the issue at the same time. I want it to feel like it's a diary entry for me, you know, and that automatically takes you down a very different road. I love movies. We all love movies. And when Tarantino makes a movie, it's a movie, but I didn't want to make a movie. And it was very much driven then by photography, stills photography and trying to find rigorously formal quite disciplined struck visual a visual language but within that inhabit it with drop in uh, sort of deeply emotional but subtle performances and that blend I think is very unique and creates a, a, a different type of response in the audience I mean you could have shot at Verite you know you could have done it all handheld and you could have got in there but that's not my... I've grown up with art. I've grown up with painters. I've grown up with, all of my friends are that way inclined. My mother took me to photo, photographic exhibitions all the time. So that's what I'm always led by in terms of my art and my practice. Um, and I wanted to try and put that on the material as much as possible.
3: What are, you, what are the films that you looked to when you were doing County
1: Lines? The one film that came up a lot that I think is a masterpiece, probably, if not the greatest war film that I think ever been made is, is Ellen Klimoff's um, come, come and see. see. Because to me, County Lines is, is a war on vulnerability and the wounds that are left are deep and they, they bleed out for a very long time. And I think Come and See examines war he he flies as close to the sun as mm-hmm. you can get with that subject matter. And I remember watching it and just being like innocent eyes are being, uh, we often say to young people as as youth workers, you know, some things cannot be unseen and come and see is, it, is sort of, is the essence of that and so that was the major influence
3: there's a fascinating story which you're probably aware of in come and see in which Klimov has said that that at certain moments in the film he used hypnosis on his (laughs) central actor in order to protect him from the scenes around him now i don't know how literally to take that i don't know how literally Klimov was talking but that idea of, of of actually exactly what you're just saying. There are some things that cannot be unseen and of Klimov being profoundly aware of that, making the movie. I think you see that in every frame of that film. And I remember when painted bird came out, just going, yeah, it's not come and see, even though the kids in it, you know, come and see is the definitive document of that, you know, innocent eyes seeing, you know, things that cannot be unseen.
1: Yeah. And that's war, you know, that's war. We can, we can tell many, many narratives of it in cinema. And there are, but for me, that's, that's war. That's what it does. And, it, and it, it's a spiritual cost, you know? And for me, that's what I was trying to examine with County lines. was if, if you annihilate someone's vulnerability, it's very hard to come back from that. It's very hard to engage in life in a trusting, progressive way. If your vulnerability has been fundamentally... Traumatized. And, you know, at the end of the film, I think there is this kind of very sense of yes, Tyler and Tony will go on, and there is still risk within the community, but something has been tarnished. Some things will not, cannot be unseen.
3: My thanks to Henry Blake for coming on the show and talking about county lines. As I said, if you want to see shorter video versions of those interviews, go to BFI Player, check out the MK3D online shows, which will stay online until everything settles down, what with one thing and another. The third guest on that most recent MK3D show was Kathleen Turner, and we've decided to give you a special bonus episode of Kermode on Film. This Thursday, you can hear an extended version of my interview with Hollywood legend Kathleen Turner. Thanks ever so much for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, visit our Patreon page, which has loads of exclusive extras, and keep watching the skies.